This is Crossing Faves, the first podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. My name is Matt Hawkins. I'm a former policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention and my friend John Pinna, executive director and founder of an organization called Muslims for Muslims. And this podcast of ours is a collaboration between MuslimsforMuslims.org and uh, Roll Top Productions, which is my little thing over here. And joining us today is a special friend of ours uh, going back many years. Um, we'll in- get his introduction here in a moment. But John Pinna, welcome. How's life in hey. upstate New York? It's, uh, it's interesting. We just had the, remember our podcast on the pillory in front of the, uh, in front of the police station, the Kingston police station? Yeah, I do. They took it down. They took it down. Interesting. It's, it's gone now. And uh, I talked to one of my my friends that was a detective over there, and he goes, uh, I'm not going to say you're responsible, but no one was thinking about it before they heard it on the podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to say that's... Find out why they actually took it down. So I, I, I think it was probably rotted, but okay. um, from the bottom up. But <laughs> I'm going to call that over. a crossing face win. No pillories <laughs> should be in front of. No shaming person say shaming should be in front of the police stations. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're, we're recovering here from a few, um, hurricanes. So, yeah. uh, that's, that's been the big news up here. So a number of trees have fallen down and, um, I'm, uh, I've been indentured to my father for years. So yeah. I was out with the chainsaw. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, know, you gotta be careful with sure those I, things. I, yeah. It, I do yeah, some chainsaw sure work for my father-in-law. <laughs> here's the problem is that it fell on the apple tree and the oh, apple tree no. is something that my father uh, this this tree has been a hassle since we planted it a hundred years ago and uh so i had to cut around it and now we'll put we'll put up we'll put up a, a picture on the what's it called now it's like propped with all these oh no things you that, knocked over the apple tree john yeah so the apple tree is it may not make it but uh i i say i tried i tried my best to save it i cut it i cut around it and now it's uh it's ready to rock. So we'll see, but we'll post some pictures of of a faith based engagement to save ecology and the environment. Right. So joining us today is Andrew Bennett, who we will soon uh, learn of all the numerous titles that go before your name. Uh, we met him in the context of him being the first ever ambassador for religious freedom for Canada which means we have someone who's either more of a northerner on our podcast than John Pinna is now. Uh, Andrew Bennett, welcome to Crossing Phase. Thanks very much, Matt. And uh, thanks, John, as well. It's great to be with you both. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. It's very, very gracious of you to participate. And uh, we're just, we, we, before we, we got started, we agreed we're not going to discuss hockey, right? No hockey discussions. (laughs) I don't remember that agreement, but okay. you know, I'll, I'll go with it. <laughs> okay. So, I, I, a sore spot this season, John. Uh, it, it is, it is. So, well, I was a tender for a while. So, uh, and um, um, I, I, I was when I was in Russia. I ended up. My coach was um, Tretyak uh, when I was when I was there. He, he like skated out, and uh, I go, and it's it was him. He was, he was, when I was in Russia uh, and overseas uh, in college, he ended up being our coach for mm-hmm. a season. And I was just, so it was unbelievable. I was one of his jerseys. I had one of his CCP that, jerseys. Yeah, it was just pretty Well, that, that's pretty legit. Just thank God that it was uh, Vladislav Trechak and not Viktor Tikhonov. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So these are all in side now I, no, no one, I think we're the only two fans maybe us and like four other people so um i'll have to post the shirt i'll have to i'll have to put it on he said i'll give you a, i'll give you a jersey as long as it doesn't end up in a frame so uh so nice. i'll have to bust that out but thank you so much for coming and and uh spending the time with us where where are you i'm in uh the nation's capital in beautiful ottawa okay so let's see say nation's capital we, we both thought okay dc but you're in Ottawa. Okay. How cold is yeah. it there? Uh, today it's actually a lovely day. I mean, it's, it's about, um, about 23 degrees Celsius. Okay. I don't know what that is, like, like 70, 70. 74, 75. Yeah. It's we, we, we tend to get pretty hot summers here. So it's, it's a bit like, it's not as bad as DC, but 
we tend to get fairly hot and muggy summers, so it's been a nice break. We had a lot of rain yesterday, and but uh, you know why Ottawa is the, the capital of Canada? I do know that Ottawa is the capital of Canada. I, I, I'm, I'm always very proud of that when I, when I talk with people about stuff, but I automatically just think DC. I was like, maybe, because you do travel quite a bit to DC, so. I do, yeah. yeah. yeah so I, I work as a senior fellow and uh, director of one of our action teams at the Religious Freedom Institute. So uh, in normal circumstances, I'm, I'm, I'm down there once a month, but uh, Ottawa has been my, my home now um, exclusively for the last eight months or so. But, uh, you know, Ottawa was chosen as Canada's capital by Queen Victoria, uh, really to protect us from you guys. Well, we, we did burn the parliament, right? The parliament building once. Uh, I think it was uh, the, the Green Mountain Boys, didn't they? The, uh, what, what, who was who it? They, the Vermont Boys, didn't they rock up there and, and, and torch it? And then you guys hammered us back with the War of 1812. Yeah, which we won. Well, I... I, I mean, you did you did destroy the capital. I, I'll, I'll give you that much. But <laughs> we got you got in Louisiana. So uh, you know the uh, uh, Jean Lafitte and and uh, Jackson. We we did brutalize you guys after the peace treaty was signed. So well, but we've you know we've been on, on pretty good terms since the, the reciprocity treaty back in what was that the eighteen nineties. So um, I, I know you've got this clause in your constitution where you, you'd always welcome us to join. But um, God save the Queen and. Uh, I wish you all the very best, our, our southern neighbors. Well, I, you obviously missed the podcast where I say that I'm I I really I work a lot in in the UK and I do a, I do a lot of engagement with the government, and uh, my stance is always that I'm the highest evolution of Brit as a New Yorker. You know, so we've just you know we've, <laughs> we we there was there were no there were no Americans at the beginning of the American Revolution. They were all British uh, citizens who the British government was oppressing. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but I. I appreciate the, uh, the the pride, uh, the the, uh, the Canadian and, and British pride. I have a, a lot of friends up there in 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 Ottawa and Toronto and Vancouver, and uh, and I have very fond memories of being in grad school and uh, being at Norwich University and going up to uh, uh, Montreal with the Le Québécois. So, uh, but uh, but like I said, we appreciate you having you on. So thank you. And among your credentials, we'll uh, do a little more formal introduction here. We'll put provide links aplenty in the show notes. Um, but among other things, you have an MA in history from McGill University, a PhD in politics from the University of Edinburgh, and you are uh, in the in the spirit of the multi or the multi faith uh, context of the Crossing Phase podcast. Um, I'm a Baptist, which puts me in the Protestant traditions of the Christian church. But you, sir, are an ordained deacon in a tradition called the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And so for a lot of our listeners, particularly evangelicals like me, when I first met you, that's a new sphere of Christendom uh, to learn about. So uh, in the context of introducing your your status as a deacon in that tradition, um, kind of, I know, without going through 2,000 years of church history, of course, uh, kind of place yourself in the orbit of, of, of Christianity, and then um, kind of explain a little bit about the, your deacon role, because a deacon role in your status is quite different from a deacon role in my, uh, in my Baptist tradition. So I'll kind of let you loose on that introduction. Sure. Well, thanks, Matt. So, yes, I'm a, a deacon in the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic or Greek Catholic Church, um, so the easiest way to understand who we are, uh, granted, I know we're probably a bit exotic, uh, certainly for a lot of your listeners. And um, So there's roughly 1.2 billion Catholics in the world. And the vast majority of those are Roman Catholics. So they fought, they are, they're Catholics of the Roman Church of the Latin Rite. And here when I say Rite, that refers to the liturgical tradition, the spiritual life, uh, all the things that kind of form how you worship, how you pray, how you live out your faith. Now, within that 1.2 roughly billion Catholics, there is around 20 million Catholics who are members of one of the Eastern churches. Now, these are churches that at various times um, have come back into communion following you know, various schisms early in the history of the church have come back into communion with uh, the Roman Church and with the Bishop of Rome. So uh, depending on how you count, it's around 21 or 22 uh, churches. 
And um, ours is the largest of those. So the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church is around five, five and a half million in the world. And we are Christians uh, of the Byzantine rite. So just as Roman Catholics um, are, are, are Christians of, of the Church of Rome, uh, which was established on the, the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul, we are Christians of the Byzantine rite. And so our mother church is not Rome, but New Rome, Constantinople. And so our church is founded upon the Apostle Andrew. So um, our, the roots of our church uh, originate in Constantinople, but more specifically with the conversion of the territory of Kiev and Rus in 988. And so we are uh, an Orthodox church. We follow all the Byzantine traditions, theology, spirituality, and so forth. But, um, and we are a church of that original church of Kiev and Rus from the 10th, the late 10th century. Vladimir but the Great. Fifth, yeah, that's right. Vladimir the Great and, and uh, Olga. Right. Uh, so our church, uh, this group of Orthodox Christians, uh, that were in what is now effectively the western part of Ukraine, Belarus and, and northern Romania, and in the late 16th century, after the fall of Constantinople, um, and that sort of break between Constantinople and uh, its daughter church in Kiev, um, there's a group of these Orthodox Christians who are under the sort of... Um, had come under the, the political control and the political sovereignty of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was Roman Catholic. And so there had been this kind of break with Constantinople. Moscow had risen in power, and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was, was sort of pressing from the, from the west, Moscow from the north. And so our church emerged uh, in the late 16th century, 1596, through uh, a union called the Union of Brest, that brought this community of Orthodox Christians of the Kievan church back into communion with uh, the Bishop of Rome. And so that's our church. So the Ukrainian Greek Catholic church, because we're not Roman Catholics, um, just as not all Roman Catholics are Italians, not all Greek Catholics are Greeks. It means that we follow the Byzantine tradition. So we have a, a patriarch, like all the, all the Orthodox churches, we have a patriarch who resides in Kiev. Um, and then we have a, a synod of bishops. Um, our church is present throughout much of the world with significant populations, obviously in Ukraine, Poland, Russia, where it's effectively an underground church. Um, and then the United States, Australia, Western Europe, Canada, um, and in Brazil, Argentina. So we're, a, we're really a, a now a global church. And I'm not Ukrainian in background. My background is Scottish and Irish. So we've got a what the Celts share with the Slavs is really a common love of root vegetables. So we're united by that and by our, our love of Christ. Um, but I, I grew up Roman Catholic and then I, I found my way into, into our church uh, when I was in my early thirties. And then I've, I've been a deacon. I was ordained a deacon uh, on November 30th, which is my patronal feast day. That's the feast of the Holy Apostle Andrew. Um, so I was ordained in 2017 on November 30th. And for us, uh, to answer the second part of your question, Matt, um, a deacon is the first of the major orders of clergy. So uh, the major orders are, are deacon, priest, and bishop. And so um, a deacon is one who is called into service. So if we think about uh, the first chapter, um, sorry, the sixth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, the apostles realize that they can't do everything. Their, their, their particular charism is to preach the gospel, but they need uh, men of good repute who can, who can provide sort of the, for the welfare of the, of the church. Um, men who can serve a table, who can assist with poor relief, helping the widows, so forth. So they choose a group of men um, who are the first deacons. So uh, this includes uh, the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen, he's the first deacon, and there are others, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas. And so in the uh, Greek New Testament, we read about these men, their role was diakonia. So the Greek word diakonia, which is, again, this idea of being called into service. So a deacon is one who serves. 
And so in the, in the apostolic churches, all the apostolic churches have deacons and some Protestant denominations have deacons as well. Um, the role, the principal role that I have is at the liturgy. So I, I serve at the liturgy with the priest. Um, I'm appointed to proclaim the gospel at the liturgy, also to preach with the permission of the priest. Um, and then deacons perform a variety of different roles within the community. So I, for example, uh, I'm a, in the Byzantine tradition, we talk about spiritual fatherhood. So I have some spiritual children I provide spiritual direction to. So that's part of my ministry. Um, and then I also work with young adults. Um, and then uh, my religious freedom work is really also part of that role. So I, I see my diaconate being a deacon as kind of the crown on, on everything that I do. And it informs everything that I do because it's all ultimately service. Sure, sure. I, uh, and so thank you for that introduction and, and that explanation. I think that's really helpful. Uh, and I, uh, remembering back, uh, when I, when I first met you, uh, I think it was, uh, maybe, I don't know if the particular gathering was for your uh, appointment. Um, but I remember meeting you at the Canadian embassy and that's I think right. we ended up walking back down Pennsylvania Avenue. I think I was probably headed to the Metro and you were probably headed to your hotel, but I remember having, I, that was the first conversation with you that I remember, uh, from right. those days. So I appreciate your, uh, your, your, your friendship and collaboration, uh, in the years, uh, after that. And uh, I think I know John's probably wanting to get into some uh, policy items. Um, and uh, so I'm about to pitch over to him, but figured uh, I let you first answer how you came about getting into uh, the role of ambassador for religious freedom for Canada, uh, how that came about and maybe uh, maybe a big lesson uh, that you learned uh, kind of reflecting back on that experience. Sure. So, um, uh, when I completed my graduate work um, in the UK at the University of Edinburgh, I came back to Canada and I was uh, hired into the Canadian Public Service. Uh, so in Canada, we have a, a nonpartisan public service that is always present and, and doesn't change substantially when, a, when the government changes. So I started work in the Privy Council office, which you don't really have an equivalent of in the American system. But it's basically the office of public servants who assist the prime minister and the cabinet to help run the government. It's a central agency, we would call it. So I was a public servant. Uh, I started in the public service in 2001 and had various roles uh, within the public service. I then left um, to go into seminary and was studying theology. And then I came back, back into the public service. And um, at that time, uh, in, it would have been May 2011, uh, we had a general election in Canada and the Conservative Party that had had minority governments, you know, where they didn't have a majority in, in Parliament, they were re-elected with a majority uh, in Parliament. And so they had a very ambitious uh, platform, including in the foreign policy space. And their principal foreign policy uh, platform element was to establish an office of religious freedom. And they had sort of seeing the trends in the world. They were looking at what, you know, the Pew Forum was saying about, about increasing uh, persecutions and violations of religious freedom taking place in the world. Uh, but the real, I think, catalyst for the establishment of that office was when um, the late Shabazz Bhatti, uh, former Pakistan uh, minister for uh, national minorities, came to Canada um, to talk about his role in defending the rights of uh, minority religious communities in Pakistan. And uh, he had a profound impact on our then uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper and also on a number of other ministers, including uh, Minister Jason Kenney, who's now the, the Premier of the province of Alberta, but at that time he was the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. And uh, Shabazz Bhatti, as I'm sure many of your listeners would know, then returned to Pakistan and was assassinated. Yeah. Um, and now uh, many, many Catholics uh, certainly calling for his, his canonization and, and his um, recognition of his martyrdom. So that, that encounter with Shabazz Bhatti, I think, helped to shape this, um, this desire amongst the Conservative Party to open an office of religious freedom. They're also looking at, at the Earth Office at the State Department. They're having lots of interactions with, with the Americans. And so that was created, took them a number of years, but it was eventually created in uh, February 2013. And um, I was approached um, 
by uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, whose purview it was, uh, to say, look, um, we've put your name forward to the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to be appointed. And, um, and so I accepted the appointment. Um, and it's very rare in the life of a public servant when you're given a brand shiny new mandate and told, <laughs> here you are, Ambassador. Go for uh, it. Create, create it. <laughs> and I think, um, as a lot of people who are involved in international religious freedom policy will know, those offices that have been set up in various ways in different foreign ministries around the world, including the Earth Office, including what uh, the UK has done, Denmark, the Netherlands, various configurations, um, typically our foreign policy uh, personnel, people working in foreign ministries, um, like many public servants, don't have a good grounding in religion and understanding the role of religion and the role that religion plays in, in geopolitics and so forth. Yeah. So same thing in Canada. Yeah. Um, I wasn't a known quantity. I mean, I had some, some colleagues at, in uh, the foreign ministry, but when I came in, um, I would say that a lot of my colleagues didn't really know how to relate to me and they didn't really know how to relate to this, uh, right. this policy area because they'd never really done a lot of work in this area. Um, a lot of people, I think, thought that it was kind of a partisan ploy on the part of the conservatives to curry favor with, with different uh, minority communities in the country. Um, but I can say that when I, when I came into that role, which I held for about three and a half years, uh, there was very, very next to no political interference. I, I acted as a public servant. I reported up, you know, through the structure within the foreign ministry. Um, and uh, we did a lot of good work, I think, um, both in the policy area and also in programming. So the two were fused. We partnered with a variety of different uh, organizations, everything from you know, multilateral bodies down to small faith-based organizations to launch various projects in different parts of the world to address some of the root causes of religious persecution in areas such as education, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, formation of, of um, uh, foreign policy experts, uh, we did work in sort of post-conflict reconciliation. Um, and we had a lot of really interesting projects in places as diverse as Myanmar, Nigeria, uh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Um, and then we did some really good policy work, including with our, our American allies. Um, many of your listeners probably know uh, Rabbi David Saperstein. Uh, so David was my immediate counterpart um, in this work. And we worked very closely together. We had a a wonderful trip to Burma where we saw the first beginnings of the grave persecution facing the Rohingya uh, population mm -hmm. in Rakhine state. Um, and uh, so we worked very closely with the Americans and with our other allies. We, it was a Canadian initiative to create uh, the international contact group on freedom of religion or belief that was um, established in June of 2015 at uh, the ambassador's residence, the Canadian ambassador to the European union's residence in Brussels. Mm -hmm. um, along with many of our, our close allies. Uh, so it was, it was a great experience. And I would say the, the greatest thing that I learned from this was how religious freedom is profoundly rooted in who we are as human beings and in our inherent dignity as human beings. And religious freedom is not necessarily about uh, the protection of the private aspects of our lives of faith, because we're always free in our inner lives of faith. Even if you're in prison, uh, you can still continue to practice your faith, especially in, in the inner life. But religious freedom is fundamentally about being able to be fully who you are and who you are called to be in the public square. Right. And so it's about public faith. And it points directly to human dignity. Again, this, this ability to live out uh, your life of faith, whether it's a specific religious belief, whether it's a philosophical belief that you have that is not specifically theistic, we all need as human beings to be able to express ourselves um, and to engage with others. And this is why this podcast is such a fantastic thing. We need to, be engaged, to engage with each other as human beings to recognize that dignity that we all bear, but also to recognize difference. And that we believe often very different things, sometimes deeply different things. But we need to be able to engage with one another uh, so that we can understand one another better, but also to recognize that, yeah, we believe different things and that's okay. We don't want to sort of go down to the mushy middle where we sort of you know, engage 
engage in this dishonesty where we say, well, ultimately it's all the same. It's not all the same. It's very different. Yeah. But what is the same is our humanity. And so how do we encounter one another uh, in, in truth? And so that's why I think religious freedom is so essential uh, for helping us to engage each other's uh, human dignity. Yeah, well said. You know, I, I think the, the dignity of the human person, which uh, that's a, I, I always use human dignity, but I've been borrowing Father John. So Father John Anderson, I don't know if you, you, you know, Father John. Uh, so we've, we've traveled together and, and he was a guest on the podcast and we met up in Irwin. We were in Erbil at the same time uh, and had a, had a conversation about it. Um, uh, and the dignity of the human person is a common thread uh, that is within all faiths and the idea that, you know, we can engage with each other, misunderstand. I always have these conversations with, uh, with Matthew up there about, well, we have this little sliver about the crucifixion. You know, if we just put that aside for a minute and we can talk about everything else, you know, so, and, uh, but it, it gives us the opportunity for us to uh, discuss, you know, some of the hard issues and the differences. But the fact is, is that he and I keep coming back because we respect each other as individuals and our faiths and who we are uh, and try to bring as many people into uh, the group as possible in the, in the podcast. And that's part of the reason why you're here is that, you know, my, my tribe doesn't, is going to say, okay, there's two Christians on the, on the podcast. Like, what's the difference? what's going on? And so uh, the, the, the description of who you are and where you came from and how you arrived at your church, but also where it resides in the pantheon of, of the Roman Catholic Church and how in, historically there are events that have led to you to where, led your church to where it is. Like the second Rome, a lot of people don't know, first Rome is Rome, second Rome, when Rome fell was, was uh, Constantinople. Or, or, uh, and then the third Rome is Moscow. Because uh, everything went up there when, <laughs> when it fell. When well, it fell it, that's that's contested, John. Well, I, I'm not gonna again. I, I don't want to commit a hate crime. I, I don't want you to shut off. But I mean, it's but it's why the the Russian uh, the Russian Federation and Imperial Russia had the double headed eagle uh, right. because that was the symbols of Rome. Uh, and uh, um, but one of the 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 most dynamic qualities about your career and something that, that Matthew and I are very passionate about is, is the, the practical application of faith in action. So, you know, I've spent most of my career, 20 years overseas, uh, uh, going to all different types of, 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 of theaters, uh, helping the most vulnerable populations on the planet as have you. And so, uh, and, and so, maybe talk, uh, unpack that a little bit. I know you're doing a lot of work in the Ukraine. I spent the last two years, uh, well, not this last year, but two years before that, working on the conflict there, uh, conflict, um, uh, the conflict monitoring in the Donbass and then autocephaly um, and, uh, and some of those issues, uh, which I always feel very smart when I say autocephaly. Uh, so just like the word asynchronous, when I say, you know, this, we're, we're speaking asynchronously, it's not bound by time or space. We can, well, anybody can go on our podcast. Um, but when, when, you, when, it, when, when it comes to your career anchored in, in this practical component of faith in action and dignity of the human person, where, where is one of the most profound experiences you've had with that practical component, and then what are you working on now uh, that is uh, that is rooted in this concept of dignity, human person, this faith component, uh, and and is is practically being applied uh, to you know, work for the forces of good. Yeah, great. That's a great question. Let me talk a little bit about maybe um, I'll, I'll just discuss Ukraine first, and then talk a bit about um, two projects: one here in Canada, and then one that we're developing with the Religious Freedom Institute in, uh, in Washington. So um, in January 2014, uh, I was invited to join uh, our Prime Minister and um, a number of my colleagues in the Foreign Service and a, a large sort of group of, of people as part of a delegation to Israel. And um, it was uh, then our, our Prime Minister Stephen Harper's first visit there. And it was a really you know, impactful uh, number of days, um, both for me, it was my first trip to the Holy Land, 
Um, and then uh, just to see, you know, the interaction between the Canadian Jewish community, uh, Israeli officials, our officials, it was really, you know, quite something to see. I guess Canada has always been a strong, well, until recently, has always been a very strong supporter of Israel. We've had a few little uh, missteps at the UN recently. Um, but I think that uh, that was an amazing experience for me. But at the same time, what was happening in the world was the Maidan revolution in Kiev was underway from you know late 2013 into 2014. We can all remember seeing, I'm sure those images um, on, on television of these Ukrainians coming from all parts of the country to that square in the center of Kiev to stand for human dignity. And this revolution has now been christened uh, the revolution of human dignity, the revolution of dignity. And in, you know, minus 25 degrees Celsius temperatures, those pictures of the, uh, the clergy standing there at night. I just remember That's that right. image. And it was, it was, it was a, a, an amazing moment in time where I think there was, I just remember a lot of yellow cause it was that like the lighting was really, whoever took the picture yeah. knew what they were doing. And, uh, and it, the clergy were standing there, but then the, the crowds of people were behind them. And a number of clergy members had gone forward to step in between the government officials or, or riot police or whatever they were and, and the people. And that symbol is, is, is a profound moment in time for the dignity of the human person, but, but faith leaders stepping up to participate in saying, Hey, let's just, let's, let's not oppress these, these, uh, these protesters, let's 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 let them celebrate this in a in the in the way in which they're uh, they should be allowed to, and and that was by taking to the streets and speaking their minds. So it was a profound moment. I remember that. We'll have to post that when we see it. Yeah, very yeah. profound. And um, as this was developing, sort of in December and through to January, I was receiving regular phone calls and uh, contact with one of our bishops. Uh, bishop Ken Novikovsky, who at that time was a bishop here in Canada. He's now uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic, a parochial bishop for the United Kingdom. He's, he's in London. And um, Bishop Ken was saying, you know, you need to see what's going on. I mean, we're having liturgies, we're having prayer services, malebans, all these things just constantly going on on the Maidan. And the bishops were at the front and all the different faith communities came together, the Jewish community, the you know, Orthodox, uh, the different Orthodox jurisdictions, Greek Catholics, um, you know, different Muslim communities, Tatar Muslims and so forth, all coming together. And um, I was asked by our government to leave sunny, warm Israel, <laughs> which I did not have a winter coat, to go to Kiev uh, to see what was happening and to engage religious leaders on the ground in Kiev over the space of about 72 hours. And so I flew into Kiev and the day I arrived, was the day that the first protesters were shot by the Bebkuts, by the, by the security forces. Mm. And um, people may recall that what happened as people were being shot, they were being taken by you know, their, their, their fellow citizens up the hill, away from the square, to uh, an Orthodox church. Um, and to uh, St. Michael's Sobor, St. Michael's Church. And that basically became a field hospital. Pope Francis is famous for talking about the church as being a field hospital for, for the soul. This was an actual field hospital in the church uh, during this time. And so to see uh, religious pe people engaged in this uh, justified act of protest and to see religious leaders being present there with the people was shaped me profoundly. We, as the Office of Religious Freedom, we subsequently went back to Ukraine. We, we, uh, I was there again in October 2014. And I remember we were looking at setting up a number of projects, including one at the Ukrainian Catholic University that would bring different Ukrainian youth in particular together to talk about what does religious freedom look like in a new Ukraine. And I remember going to, uh, we were in Lviv in, in Western Ukraine, uh, and I went to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Seminary there to meet with some of the seminarians. And they were talking about their experience of this revolution and this idea of human dignity and how it was shaping this revolution. And I remember one of these seminarians in the most humble way, he said, Ambassador, are we, are we doing the right thing? 
And I was so uh, touched by that. And I said, you are living out a vocation, a particular vocation, not just for Ukraine, but for the rest of Europe, about what does it mean to stand for human dignity in the face of uh, oppression. And so that, that really shaped me, not only because I'm Ukrainian Greek Catholic and I got to engage with, with sort of you know, our people on the ground there in Ukraine, but also to see how people from all different traditions, religious traditions were coming together for this, this particular cause that was, that was very right, despite what propaganda was saying and so forth. And there's a lot of that going around. Um, but let me switch uh, tracks and, and talk about one project that we're engaged uh, in right now as the Cardis Religious Freedom Institute. So um, I divide my time currently between the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. and Cardis, which is Canada's only faith-based think tank. And there I direct the Cardis Religious Freedom Institute. And so we've launched a project that we've actually called the Diakonia Project. So this idea of being called into service where we are profiling eight different faith-based initiatives across Canada in different cities doing different things in the public realm. So these are people of faith who are of their own volition. They're not being told to do this by government or by the corporate world or by, they do it out of their faith. They engage in projects related to refugee resettlement, to ministering to people who have left hospital and have no one to spend time with them. Uh, a, a wonderful Jewish organization called Vea Hafta in the greater Toronto region that works with the homeless. Um, the Welcome Home in the north end of Winnipeg, a Ukrainian Greek Catholic uh, initiative that reaches out to um, urban uh, indigenous Canadians who are often very disadvantaged, working with them. The Union Gospel Mission in Vancouver, BC, that is reaching out to very serious problems of homelessness in the lower, in the downtown east side uh, in Vancouver. And what we want to do is to demonstrate that these people of faith from a variety of different traditions, we're actually also engaging, engaging the Ismaili Civic Initiative, which is led by the, uh, the Ismaili, Shia Ismaili Jamaat uh, here in Canada. Um, why do people of faith do what they do? And what do they do? And what is the impact that they have within communities? And so we want to kind of represent that to people because everyone knows I think in any city you, you live in, or small town, whatever, okay, if I want to put Johnny, you know, in Boy Scouts or Susie in the Girl Guides, I go over to, you know, Christ Church Anglican. Or if I need to avail myself of the 12-step program, I go over to, you know, First Presbyterian. Or if I want to, you know, if I need a meal, I can go to the sick Gurdwara down the street, uh, and they have their, their communal kitchen. And... People know this in our communities, but we want, what we want to do through this project is to really profile it and get policy actors to see, you know, you need to support these, these groups. You don't need to give them money. Just let them do what they're going to do and make sure that they have the freedom to do what they're doing because that is religious freedom in action. Sure. And so we wanted to profile that. So we're doing, we've, what we've done is uh, members of these different faith-based initiatives, we've asked them to write an article that talks about who they are uh, what they do and why they do it. And so those will be coming out uh, in the coming weeks. And then myself and some of our researchers are doing a bit of a deeper dive into uh, these various initiatives and producing case studies that look at, you know, why do they do this and how effective are they in meeting various goals? Um, so that's the, the Diakonia project. Um, the other project that I would talk about, and it probably leads in maybe to another part of the discussion I think we wanted to have, and that's uh, something called the Brethren in the Faith Initiative at the Religious Freedom Institute in DC, and that's uh, addressing a, a very serious challenge right now in the United States and Canada, and that is resurgent uh, anti-Semitism. Mm, yes. Yeah, please elaborate uh, on that for sure. Um, I have, I have a, a follow-up question maybe if we have time, but uh, as, as one uh, who has engaged on anti-Semitism in the past um, during my work with the, with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist, and uh, we, we often um, were looking at that, uh, I, was, I started getting interested in it, gosh, many years ago, um, 
and probably around 2013 when people were starting to notice a resurgence and starting to measure a resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe. And then only two or three short years later, we were seeing the same kind of thing here in the States. Um, it looked a little different, but um, it, it's all the same, uh, the same thing. So yes, please elaborate um, on what your project is with regard to anti-Semitism. Sure. Well, I think just to, just to reiterate what you've said, Matt, and that is um, we've seen over the last uh, three years uh, in the United States and certainly uh, in Canada, but maybe not as pronounced in Canada, but certainly there's a trend of a significant uptick in anti-Semitic attacks, including violent attacks against Jews, uh, particularly religious Jews who are very identifiable, uh, especially in the Hasidic community in Brooklyn. We had that very unfortunate attack that took place in Monsey, um, not too far from, from where you are there, uh, John. Um, and then also uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue, um, the attack at the Chabad Synagogue in Poe. So these are um, very prominent examples, but there's also a lot of other types of anti-Semitism that we're seeing, both motivated by, by far-right hatred, but increasingly on far-left as well. Um, and just looking at some of the data that's out there, um, between sort of 2008 um, and 2015, 2016, um, the level, the number of anti-Semitic attacks recorded averaged around, as in the United States, averaged around about between 1,100 and 1,200 per year. Yeah. In 2017, this shot up to just under 2,000 uh, in, in 2017. In 2018, 1,900 roughly. And then in 2019, 2,100. And what can we attribute this to? Um, There's probably a lot of things that we can point to, uh, but I think there's also the character of these attacks. There's certainly what I would call kind of more uh, traditional, very pernicious forms of anti-Semitism where the the stereotyping of Jews, uh, their relationship, purported relationship to the world economy, these types of things that have been around for, for many, many decades and centuries. Um, various versions of, you know, the, the old blood libel, all these types of pernicious forms of anti-Semitism that have always been there uh, are kind of rearing their ugly head uh, in various ways, especially in far-right um, attacks. But then on the far left, and we're seeing this in particular on campuses, both in the United States and Canada, uh, where Jewish students are, are being attacked, they're being marginalized um, because of their support for Israel. And so you have anti-Semitism that takes the form of anti-Zionism, this idea that Israel has no right to exist, Israel has no right to defend itself, or Jews don't have the right to perform aliyah to return to Israel. And we have to distinguish between you know, legitimate criticism of Israel, like any country is subject to legitimate criticism for its policies, domestic, foreign policy, whatever. But Israel is the only country in the world that suffers this type of attack where it's basically said, you have no right to exist. We want to wipe you off the face of the map. And that um, is a is a also very pernicious form of anti-Semitism, but it seems to be getting picked up by the left because... Um, Israel now is seen to be the oppressor. And so I think this is very problematic uh, because of what it, it, what it says about our ability to have a common life with one another. And anti-Semitism obviously has to be condemned as anti-Semitism, but it also has to be seen as a bit of a canary in the coal mine. And historically, when there's been an uptick in anti-Semitism, it usually presages an uptick in other forms of Um, of attacks against, you know, minority communities, certainly attacks against Muslims, Uh, attacks, now we're seeing attacks even against Catholics, uh, churches being vandalized, uh, statues being defaced in the United States. Um, So, you know, when you get into, especially there's, there's challenging economic times, there's challenging political times, there's the look out for the scapegoat. Was Who can a, we blame for this? Yeah, there was always a, an indicator for us at, at the American Islamic Congress. We would always watch out for anti-Semitism. And we had a very strong anti-Semitism uh, agenda, but there was, it was the canary in the coal mine. You knew that something was happening if anti-Semitism was on the rise. And we had to, we are relationships with the, the Jewish community, the AJC and all the other entities. We would always make sure we were collaborating with them. But it was, it's a very 
it, it, it is an indicator. And as sad as that is to say, um, is that if, because the Jewish community is one of the vulnerable, most vulnerable populations on the planet. Uh, and uh, I know we've said it in previous episodes uh, where this, the persecution means that there's an uptick in something happening politically, religiously, something. Uh, and, and if you get your finger on it now, then we'll be able to stem it off, not only for the Jewish population, but for other religious populations. So it's a, it's a, it's a profound thing. I took a lot of heat for saying that when I was at AIC, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, so, uh, uh, but, uh, and, and I still I, uh, take, take some heat when I was doing the anti-Semitism work and, and uh, talk about Israel because I, I went about a year ago. And so, uh, uh, it's it's strange. It's like the balance of the existence of, of Israel, and we all know the strife that's going on there. Uh, and I know that my tribe is going to say, "Well, say, John, say something. Why didn't you say something about what's going?" We're not saying there's not problems in the Middle East. Uh, we're not no, saying there's not problems with uh, the, with Palestine, and and we all have a profound moment in time with the UAE uh, and and uh, their uh, historic agreement with Israel right now. Uh, which is kind of funny because the first thing that was said to me, how come when the UAE talks with Israel, they don't get in trouble, but every, all the rest of us do. That was the, that was the conversation that happened actually this week. And I, I, I go, John, you know, how could, I go, yeah, I, I, I've been hammered on it quite a bit. Um, but I, I appreciate you saying that because a lot of people don't realize that in our business, religious freedom and freedom of religion, belief, dignity of human person, these indicators are very, very important to us. Uh, and a good example is we were talking about Pakistan. There, there was a, the burning of Jamaat Khanas in 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 uh, in Chitral. Mm. The Kalasha people that are being persecuted by the Pakistanis in in the northern territories there, um, the north just north of of, of Chitral. They're there, it's an indicator of how they are going to react and interact with the larger, the larger minorities. And so the, the, the anti-Semitism comment and the, the, how the Jews are, are being persecuted and how that's an uptick in the numbers, we track, we track these, these numbers very passionately um, and then we act on them. Uh, and it, it's not pandering necessarily. It, it is about make, stewarding the entire religious freedom movement and making sure that our brothers and sisters, regardless of faith, are protected. So I, I'm sorry for the interjection, but I, a lot of people don't understand what that means. They go, oh, you're pandering, you're doing this, you're doing that. No, Jews should not be persecuted. Muslims shouldn't be persecuted. Christians shouldn't be persecuted. That's right. But the anti-Semitism component is such a, it's such a concentrated um, uh, indicator that we use uh, quite a bit. Uh, in Western countries, I mean, Europe and so forth. So I just wanted to kind of make sure that we it made that comment interjected, and I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, no, it's, it's an essential point, and um, I think a lot of people might, might have this sort of false understanding that, well, anti-Semitism is really, it's a, it's a racism of a form. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a racism against the Jewish people. And I would come back and say, yes, they are a nation, but they are a nation because of their relationship to God and their covenant and the Torah and so forth. And so you can't divorce the two. And, and when you see, um, you know, outwardly religious Jews, you know, Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn or, or Monzi, as I said, being attacked, um, it's, it's and, it, and often in synagogues or celebrating a, a religious feast or a religious event and they're attacked that is a violation of their religious freedom, very clearly. And so I think we have to be vigilant uh, in talking about, um, about anti-Semitism in that context and saying, yes, there is this you know, uh, prejudicial kind of racist element to anti-Semitism, but it's also bound up with uh, the, the faith of the Jewish people. Um, one thing that I, maybe just I'll speak a little bit about what we're trying to do at RFI. Now, just to tell your listeners that the Religious Freedom Institute is a nonpartisan, uh, non-sectarian uh, think tank. So we we don't sort of lean any particular way, you know, politically. Uh, I'm a Canadian, so I'm it's inside baseball for you guys. Um, but we also don't, you know, we have people from a variety of different religious traditions uh, on the team. 
And what we wanted to do was to try and look, well, how can we as um, an organization that is not a Jewish organization, that is not a pro-Israel organization, what role can we play in addressing this question? Because we think we've got a unique position in that regard, because a lot of the work that's done uh, in combating anti-Semitism, it's done by explicitly Jewish and, and pro-Israel organizations, such as the Anti-Defamation League, uh, the Tikva Fund, um, uh, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and so forth. So what we came up with uh, is, a, is a, a program, a project that we hope to launch very soon called the Brethren in the Faith Initiative. And this emerged out of a number of conversations I had with, with uh, members of the Jewish community who I know and uh, have come to be friends with. Uh, and they were all saying, well, what, what about Christians? Can, can Christians do something for us? Can they, be, can they speak for us? Can they be champions for the Jewish community? And so the idea of the uh, pastors, priests, bishops, what have you, um, to form them, first of all, in what is anti-Semitism, what are the different forms that it takes, how does it spread, how does it manifest itself, um, talk a little bit about the theology. So what is the theological basis for uh, standing with our uh, brothers in the faith, uh, the Jewish people, um, because as Christians, um, and I'm sure this is the same in the Protestant tradition, that, but certainly in the Catholic and the Orthodox tradition, you know, we understand ourselves as the Gentiles who are grafted on to the, the tree of Israel. Right. And um, we acknowledge that the, the Jewish people are the covenanted people of Israel and that the covenant is still in place. But we understand that, you know, Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the covenant. Not right. wipe it out, but fulfill it. Yeah, fulfill it, right. And so we have this, so we have this, I think, this connection theologically, spiritually, ethically uh, with the Jewish people. And so the thinking is, is that with the Brethren in the Faith Initiative, is we work with Christian leaders to form them and to provide them with resources through which they can become champions for Jewish communities. And then we partner them with specific Jewish communities, and we get them to engage with rabbis. We get them to spend time in Williamsburg. We get them to spend time in Monsey. We get them to spend time with different you know, synagogues so that they can engage uh, the Jewish community as they live their Judaism on a day-to-day -day basis. And so um, there's, the, there's the formation aspect, there's the education aspect, there's the equipping aspect, and then there's the, the kind of the, the neighborly aspect. Um, and we hope that through this initiative, which would be a multi-year initiative, uh, that we would then um, equip uh, those Christian leaders um, so that they could be champions in defending the Jewish community and to recognize that there's a theological rationale for doing that. Right. Uh, you know, I remember being at an event once, uh, an event that was organized across North America by the Lantos Foundation, you know, named after former Congressman Tom Lantos, great defender of human rights. And Katrina Lantos-Sweat, who I think we, we know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, great champion of religious freedom, you know, former chair of USERF. And Katrina and I became friends many years ago when I began this work. And they began a project called Solidarity Sabbath, where local uh, leaders, Christian leaders, political leaders, so forth, would go to a synagogue on uh, the Sabbath, on Shabbat, to demonstrate their solidarity with the Jewish people. So Katrina said, would you do this? And I said, absolutely. This is while I was still ambassador, and I went to a synagogue, a conservative synagogue here in Ottawa that I hadn't been to before, and I said, can I come and be with you for Friday prayers, Friday evening prayers? And the rabbi said, sure, come on along, and we'll give you a chance to speak and talk about this project. And so I went, and in the middle of, of the service, the rabbi called me forward to the bima and said, okay, ambassador, what do you have to say to us? And I thought to myself, I've spoken to congregations of uh, different Jewish congregations before about, about Holocaust remembrance, about anti-Semitism. And at that moment, I thought, what do I say? How do I show my solidarity with them? And I recalled um, an incident in the life of St. Jose Maria Escriva, uh, a Spanish priest uh, in the early to mid 20th century, who was the founder of uh, the Catholic um, uh, movements, both lay and religious, uh, called Opus Dei. Many people might be familiar with Opus Dei. Yeah. And um, 
St. Jose Maria said when he was uh, asked to explain the church's relationship to the Jewish people by a, a young Jewish woman at this event, he started off by saying these words. He said, the love of my life is a Jew, referring to Jesus Christ. And so I stood, that came into my head, and I was in front of uh, this, this congregation of, of, of Jews in Ottawa, and I said, the love of my life is a Jew. And afterwards, and I kind of spoke for about five minutes, and afterwards, people came up to me and said, no one has ever said anything like that to us before. That that's what you understand your faith as. Right. That you feel bound to us in this way. Yeah. And I said, absolutely. And, and so that, for me, is an example of how you know, what you're doing with this podcast and what we all need to be doing in terms of engaging people of other traditions, people who believe profoundly different things. I mean, I, I profoundly disagree with my, my rabbinical friends who reject the incarnation and the resurrection. Right. I think they're wrong. Yeah. But I also know that, that we, we, we share in this, this faith in, in the one God and in this, this tradition of sort of ethical monotheism and, and so on and so forth and that we have shared scriptures and all these things. And obviously, you know, John, the, the connections that we have with, with the, the you know, Muslim people. And so I think this, that was another event that demonstrated to me, this has to be at the core of how we live our lives of faith. And so I'm hoping that with the Brethren in Faith Initiative, um, I can get other Christian leaders to make that same statement. And um, hopefully we can, we can do what little we can to address um, you know, this, this real scourge in our society of, of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's important to have innovation within, within anti-Semitism anti programming. I, that's, I think that's key. Um, we have, a, 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 I think there's a comfortability that happens with existing programming. This is one of my passions is to, <laughs> is to make sure that we evaluate what's going on there because, uh, I used to participate with women's empowerment programming and, and evaluation of women's empowerment programming. And, and sometimes they say, well, maybe we should take a look at this programming. Maybe there's a better program. <laughs> and they say, well, we can't get rid of any of, of this women's empowerment programming because uh, then we're against women. And I, I try to explain, no, uh, let's get the money where it's going to have the most use. It's still going to be for women. Same thing with anti-Semitism and, and same thing with religious freedom programming allocating the appropriate funds and in, in a responsible manner and, but listening to something, something that can be innovative, that can be timely, uh, is really profound in the moment. Uh, and it may, it may only last for the moment. So, you know, it, it might only last for while there's an increase in anti-Semitism, but it might have the impact to stem it off and then go from there. I, I uh, uh, and it may, I, it's very meaningful for, RFI and uh, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, Religious Freedom Institute, RFI, to be innovating uh, down those lines. And I know that uh, my colleagues over there, friends and uh, that are doing stuff is, is uh, you know, Tom Farr and Jerry Barker and Ishmael and all those guys are doing stuff. Uh, you know, they're always kind of, you know, really kind of having these sort of sessions where I know they're thinking really hard about what can happen and how they can do it. Uh, and so we're, we're happy that they're, uh, that you're, you're not only on the podcast, but that we're, we work very closely with the organization. But this sounds, it, this is cool. It, it, let's put some, let's inject something new that can capitalize on the already existing structures that are out there and entities doing stuff, but reinvigorate with the same narrative, different faces, and uh, bring some of the, some new ideas in to the uh, the idea of advocacy and protection of those who are being persecuted in the moment, uh, so that it doesn't blossom into something very large, uh, larger, and uh, that's going to and it impact the impact the, the what's going on in the country in a positive way, and also globally set examples. Just like we were talking about you being the equivalent, the, 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 the Canadian equivalent to the ambassador at large for international religious freedom. That's not by accident. It, it happened because we had muddled through it for so long. And then it may or may not have been, uh, uh, there may, there, 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 it may or may not have been successful at that moment. Uh, and, and I'm not making a statement of whether it was, but there was wins and there were losses. 
but the Canadians then jumped on board uh, to springboard that into, into your own, you made it your own. It was a Canadian office with the Canadian narrative, but was capitalizing on something that we were doing and you could do things that we couldn't do. That's, that's key. That new right. office uh, and your quality of, of uh, your brand of engagement and your brand of programming created a force multiplier in many ways. And it, by you know, he, there's only one ambassador large in, in America, right? So then you had another one, another guy out there floating around you, uh, and y- your priorities were different, and uh, and it and it made meaningful change and meaningful engagement. Uh, cut your Israel trip short, but 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 the point is, is like that's the cool part of it. That's a quality that that if you weren't out there doing that, it who knows where you would have been uh, a civil servant stuck in the Canadian office somewhere. Uh, you know, say, you know, I, I figure out Vancouver somewhere or where are we out. Um, but the point is, is that, is that in this context, when it comes to this anti-Semitic programming at RFI, it, it's, it's a great moment to say, oh, I wonder where this is going to go. And I wonder mm-hmm. how it's going to collaborate with these different entities. And we can, we'd love to have you on to talk about it uh, in a future show and see where, what's going on. And, and I know Matt and I will be participating in one way or another. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be figuring it out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Thank you. Well, that'd be yeah. great. I mean, we, um, you know, we're, we're actually, if I can, if I can put in a plug here, we are still looking for, for funding partners for Brethren in Faith, for Brethren in the Faith Initiative. Um, and we want to be able to partner with uh, with foundations and individuals who are also committed uh, to this idea of bringing uh, Christians and Jews together uh, for this work. Um, and so, uh, been very blessed to have a number of good uh, good meetings and encounters with with different organizations. But we're we're looking for support for this, and uh, I'm very excited about it. And we want other people to be excited about it. So, please, God, uh, Providence will <laughs> shine on us. With every donation over fifteen grand, uh, Father Andrew Bennett will give you a personal blessing uh, and uh, and a signed autographed picture of himself. That's uh, you'll you'll have to forgive John. He's been uh, he's been uh, tracking a little too, few too many uh, prosperity gospel folks on social media lately. So I'm, I'm you know, my best for, behavior. And, uh, you know. Maybe maybe an icon of the Mother of God. Uh, okay. you know. I, I, was, it, what we can talk. I'd love to chat with you offline about fund, different funding and stuff like that for that for the program. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, so we can. I've been working with some of this stuff, um, but there might be some opportunity there. But but wonderful. thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you for the, that example of an initiative. It's a it's a, a, a one of the things. It's it's a kind of model that that we like to highlight and, and talk about here on Crossing Phase. Uh, and I think particularly on your on that project, you're you've explained why in many cases and explained the how um, for people who are like me, and I think I can say like you, who are theologically conservative, uh, we believe some uh, some pretty precise things uh, about the Bible and, and about the faith, um, and we have disagreements with those who are outside the faith, um, and even those within or you know within the faith, faith um, uh, even within you know my own church, and I'm sure your own church, um, mm-hmm. but. Uh, f- especially in this day and age for us to have some, some models of multi-faith engagement or whatever we want to call it um, for pastors and local churches in particular to, to uh, reach out to um, communities outside of our, our, our halls of worship um, and to uh, do so in a way that harmonizes with our theology uh, and actually expresses our faith in a coherent and faithful way. uh, And yet, and yet uh, treats our neighbor uh, as we would want our, ourselves to be treated. So I appreciate you uh, doing that in this particular initiative um, that you're launching with RFI, but also clearly uh, it's been a pattern of your, of your career for quite some time now. So Father Deacon Andrew Bennett, thank you once again for joining us on Crossing Fades podcast. Thank you, Matt. And thanks, John. It's, a, it's been a blessing to, to be with you and a, and a joy as well. Appreciate you taking the time, sir. Thank you all for watching here on YouTube um, or listening, if you're listening, um, uh, to the audio channels. Uh, If you've not subscribed yet to the audio channels, we're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. And this information and more is available at crossingphase.com. Until next time, this is Matt Hawkins and John Pinna. Thank you. This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Pinna. 
a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter, at MTHawk, at JTPinna, or at Crossing Phase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingfaiths.com.